Welcome to Veterinary Advice, Animal News, and Views, the place for pets. And they're people who love them. Aw, he's so soft. Come here, come here, boy. Here is your host, practicing veterinarian, veterinary news network reporter, and host of the popular YouTube show, The Web DVM, Dr. Roger Welton. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Veterinary Advice, Animal News and Views. I'm your host, Roger Welton, coming to you from the Florida Space Coast, and I will be giving you my final broadcast of the 2011 season. We've already completed our last YouTube show of the season, and we're going to go ahead and uh, finish today and conclude the year with some final thoughts. And there's a lot to talk about with that regard, because I think there were some, certainly some triumphs. Uh, this year in the field of veterinary medicine and the pet care industry. Um, some things we can do better with um, and, and some things that were, uh, you know, the, the foundation, the seeds were laid for a promising future. And certainly I want to kind of cover all of that. And uh, I'm also going to spend a lot of today's show on, on, on these questions uh, that I had received from listeners. We actually had some really interesting ones. And they're very involved, and in, uh, so we're going to spend a, a bit of time on those as well. And before I get into tonight's topic, I just want to dive right into our first question. And uh, we just kind of go over these in the order they were received. And the first one I received was from a gentleman named Ron from Orange County, California. And uh, this is a real interesting one. And, and actually, I, what I generally try to do with these questions is kind of answer them off the cuff. I don't like to be too prepared because I like to be a bit spontaneous in my answers. Uh, but for this one, I had to do a little bit of research because uh, there, there were some things that I, I just I couldn't quite explain. So let me just jump right into the question. <clears throat> this is uh, from Ron again from Orange County, California. If a dog has, has, has had muscle weakness and pain as a result of having frontline applied to the skin, several challenges with the product that all cause the same reaction, try this on a yearly basis for one dose only with the same result, can revolutions cause the same problems even though the medication slash molecules are different? This dog also had a reaction to fentanyl. Three days of muscle aches and inability to focus his eyes on us. Toxic reaction. The strange thing about this reaction is that the dog did very well on fentanyl for six years with no side effects. My thoughts are that the production line making fentanyl overdosed one pill causing a double or triple dose of fentanyl, but I called the company. No complaints with that lot number. Could a dose ranging test be done with revolution? One third dose day one, two thirds dose day two. I would not be looking for efficacy on this with this test, just tolerability. Beginning with the second month, I would apply a full dose if he tolerated the trial. My thoughts on frontline and revolution are that there may be something going on related to the topical delivery with the circumvention of first pass metabolism by the liver. The dog has been tested for MDR1 and is genetically negative for these genes, neither homozygous or heterozygous. Folks, I'll shed a little light on that part in a minute. This dog is very sensitive to food and possibly allergies, generalized itching over the entire body. I have been feeding him organic chicken baked in the oven to see if there may be an allergy to something in regular chicken. He also gets regular food, science diet for sensitive stomachs. I'm now wondering if he's allergic to chicken. <clears throat> so a couple of components to this question here. First off, um, I, I, I hit the archives a little bit because I wanted to be uh, as informed as I could for this question because I have never seen 
in my career, which is ten, you know going on 10 years now, I've never seen a dog get muscle weakness from the result of frontline application. I've never seen any of these symptoms occur from the application of Revolution or Sentinel either. Um, and it's just, it's just very bizarre to me. Now, talking about the MDR1 gene, that gene is responsible for sensitivity to a particular heartworm preventive uh, called ivermectin. And ivermectin is the, av uh, the active ingredient in several heartworm preventives. Um, but ivermectin is not present in Sentinel, not present in Revolution, certainly not present in Frontline, because Frontline is just for fleas and ticks. And this dog's negative for that gene anyway, so we wouldn't even have ivermectin sensitivity. So where is this coming from? Um, it, it, it's nothing short of bizarre. When I hit the archives, I basically found that um, there are some very isolated and rare cases of Sentinel, uh, and, and that's administered as a pill, uh, causing some cases of depression and lethargy um, and, and, and GI disturbance. But I found nothing on muscle weakness. Not, nothing to the magnitude that's being described here. So this is very interesting. Um, as far as the front line is concerned, uh, there is no fat first pass metabolism uh, going through the liver with regard to that particular product. And Ron must have some science background because using words like efficacy, tolerability, talking about first pass metabolism, sounds like he knows what he's talking about. Um, but with, in the case of Frontline, uh, I checked and double-checked and rechecked uh, the pharmacology of it. The product gets translocated from its original site of application, typically between the shoulder blades. Uh, we put it in one site, and then it gets translocated uh, through the lymphatic vessels of the skin, and it stays in the skin. It, get, it has no systemic absorption whatsoever. Um, and this is a fact that's been proven, uh, you know, for eons. Proline's been around a pretty long time. Now, we know the active ingredients are methoprene and fipronil um, as far as prevention of the fleas and the ticks. Now, when it comes to the actual translocation of the product, those are the inert ingredients, and those actually aren't divulged to us because those are not um, subject to patent expiration. Uh, it's the active ingredients that are subject to patent expiration and having to divulge uh, and give the opportunity for generics to use the methoprene and the fipronil specifically. So the inert ingredients we're not really that familiar with, but what we do know is that none of the product ends up being systemically absorbed. At the same time, I'm not saying Ron is lying here because obviously, uh, the, you know, you, you can't argue with what seems to have happened clinically here. And, and to be honest, I could not find an explanation for this. So I, I don't know exactly why that has occurred. Now, in the case of Sentinel, the active ingredient in Sentinel is called Nobomycin oxime, and the flea preventive part of it is, is called Lufuranon, also neither of which have been associated with muscle weakness um, to the degree that's being described here. So it's just, it's just right now defying explanation. Now, as far as the revolution situation, um, I guess that hasn't been tried yet. Ron uh, is asking if we can do a gradual dosing trial, and I don't see a problem with that. I think doing a third dose and see how the dog does would be good. Um, I wouldn't do a two-thirds dose on day two, though. I'd probably do the third dose, the, the one-third dose, and wait a full month. Because in California, you don't have a huge heartworm problem to begin with. I mean, the, the climate there, from my understanding, from colleagues I know that work in California, uh, veterinarians, heartworm, yes, it's, 
it's something to certainly have some concerns about, but we're not talking about the situation like we have here in Florida where, you know, you can most certainly stand a big risk of your dog getting heartworm disease if not on a proper dose of prevention. But in the case of your dog, I would suggest just doing the one-third dose, wait a full month, because what will happen is if, you, if you're doing successive dosing day-to-day, um, I would say that uh, you run the risk of loading up that dose pretty much fairly quickly, and it pretty much would not be very different from giving them the full dose all at once. So my suggestion is go with a third dose, wait a month. If that goes well, try a two-thirds dose. If that goes well, you know, wait another month, go with a full dose, um, so on and so forth, because given the history of this dog, there's, there's severe sensitivities here that we just cannot predict how he's going to react to Revolution. Now, Revolution is a completely different uh, medication altogether. Now, it is a topical that's applied that gets translocated, so that means it might, it might share some similarities with frontline and the fact that it has to get translocated to the rest of the skin. Um, now, the active ingredient in Revolution um, is a, that, that does get absorbed uh, systemically. So the heartworm preventive aspect of it is something that will undergo to some degree uh, some liver metabolism. So um, I would be very careful with it. And if it comes down to it in the end that your dog can't tolerate any of that, well, like I said, your heartworm problem in California is, is not to the magnitude of other places in the country. And maybe in the end, the best thing for your dog is to not be on anything and consider just doing the yearly heartworm testing uh, just to make sure he remains negative and nothing further needs to be done. I, I'm not going to certainly advise that right off the get-go. I'd love to see him on a heartworm preventive, but you're just going to have to be very careful. As far as a chicken allergy, well, we do see um, we do see food allergy uh, quite a bit in dogs, and it can manifest in the skin. Food allergic dogs with chronic skin disease, and it can man uh, manifest in the bowels or in some porcelain. It happens in the bowels and the skin. Okay, so chicken is up there on our food allergy list, and I respect the fact that you know you went with the organic chicken, but. Really, the organic part is not what's important. The important part is the poultry-based protein is something that he's reacting to. So it's the actual flesh itself coming from that particular animal, the protein source, not so much the fact that there may or may not be preservatives or that the poultry may or may not have been fed antibiotics while getting raised. You know, I, I, don't, I think that's less the issue, more the issue that chicken is high on the, aller the food allergy list. Um, beef is up there, too. So my suggestion would be to try... You know, rather than maybe a science diet for sensitive stomachs, consider maybe one of the prescription hypoallergenic diets. Talk to your vet about um, Royal Canin makes a nice line of diets. They have a, a venison and potato-based diet, which I really like. Or you can consider uh, treating, or I'm sorry, feeding with the Hills-based product. Now, Hills makes science diet, but they also offer a line of prescription diets. And Hills VD Ultra is a very nice hypoallergenic diet. And that's that works by... Um, basically, it's an engineered food where the, the protein and carbohydrate chains are broken into very small chains that are very absorbable and very low on the reactivity scale. So that's what I would suggest there. Um, but it's certainly possible that your dog has a chicken allergy because chicken is like two or three on most allergy lists. Very interesting question, Ron. Thank you very much. And, uh, you know, wish you the best there. Uh, so that's our first one. We got three more to go, but I'm going to, I like to kind of parcel them out. 
as we go along with our broadcast here. And uh, I want to get into our topic a little bit, reflections on the year. And uh, of course, one of the things that's at the forefront of most of our minds is the stinking economy. And, um, you know, we talked about this last year in the final thoughts, and it still remains a crappy economy. And, you know, it's like it's like it's become the new normal now, but it's a reality we all need to deal with. But here's what I feel about this at this point. Um, from the from the from the sake of my practice, I, I look at where I thought I would be at this point in, in, in my ownership of the practice now going on seven years. I envisioned much greater things, much faster growth, uh, the ability to have more doctors, more fancy equipment. Um, you know, I, I just, you start these, uh, these, these big projects and you have goals in mind. And uh, little did I know that the, the economy was going to throw a monkey wrench in those goals. And at first I was quite disappointed about it and I complained about it. And, um, you know, I'm starting to feel now at this point that it's time to stop complaining. And that, I, I think that really applies to all of us, not just me, the, the, the veterinary office owner, but everybody. Um, this is our reality. It's not poised to change anytime soon. And we just need to live with the current circumstances. In my case, I've had to watch very carefully what we spend. I get, I upgrade my equipment only in situations where I know I can absolutely afford it. Um, and I have to be careful with, you know, the, the staff's overtime. And I've, I've just, you know, taken all kinds of precautions. I've not personally taken a raise myself in 2007. I've trimmed the fat a bit, you know, to, 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 to put it mildly. And, and bottom line, that's what I've had to do. And um, I'm just grateful that I get to go and be a veterinarian every day in my own practice, in my own clinic. And, and you know, that's much better than a lot of people can say. I still get to do a job I love to do. And you know what? The, the dream that I have, it's not gone. Uh, where I, I, I envision this Mayo Clinic of veterinary medicine one day. It's not gone. One day things will turn around. It's just not going to happen anytime soon, and there's no sort of magic solution here. From the pet owner perspective, folks, there's things you can do as well. Uh, every day when I'm confronted with a situation where a pet, a pet owner has a sick pet or an injured pet that needs uh, intensive treatment, or aggressive treatment of some kind, you wouldn't believe the sob stories I hear. And to be honest with you, I could, at first I sympathize, I sympathize, and I still sympathize, but at the same time, it's just, it's just becoming a bit old from my perspective. I have to tell you, when I come in the veterinary office, it, it becomes to the point where I actually, as soon as I start hearing the sob stories, when we give them the estimate for the cost of some of the things that need to be done, I just cut them off and say, look, look, I sympathize. I, 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 I sympathize with the fact that, you know, this is tough for you to afford. But when I come in this office, ma'am or sir, I'm not your financial advisor. I don't know anything about your financial situation. My job is to not, my job is not to <laughs> advise you in that regard. My job is to provide the best medical treatment that I think your dog or cat needs right now. Um, and that's what I'm going to do. Whether or not you know, you can afford this or however you, whatever strings you have to pull and, and, and magic you need to, to invoke to uh, be able to afford this, that's your business. And that's not the discussion I'm going to have with you. Um, and, and, and really it's, 
it's just one of those things where I, I don't want to feel cold about it, um, but it's just kind of this kind of broken record over and over and over again. Um, so it, it, it's reached the point where I just have my technicians present the estimate, and if they can't afford it, then I work down from there and I say, okay, well, let's, let's consider the next best option, so on and so forth. But I'm not going to sit there and, and hear a 10-minute story about a loss of job and, you know, uh, you know these, these these, these sort of well with me stories. And, and the bottom line is that in some of these cases, you know, precautions could have been taken. There's options available to people. There's things like pet insurance, you know, 25 to $35 a month um, that you pay for a premium could mean the difference of being able to afford life-saving care for your pet versus, you know, having to make the sacrifice of not treating the pet because there's no money for the pet. Some of these insurance programs are just fantastic. They'll, re they'll reimburse 80% of the bill in a lot of cases. And, you know, you can ask your vet or talk to your vet about some of the more reputable ones out there. Um, I had a show, uh, I believe it was last year, uh, titled The $50 Rule. All of our shows are archived, and I would suggest you consider The $50 Rule. If you don't like the idea of paying an insurance company, um, you know, to, to, to provide uh, a sound future for the possibility that your pet may get sick or injured, well, consider the $50 rule. And, and I like this one. You have a, a bank account set aside, and, and you put $50 in that account a month per pet you own. So if you have one pet, you put 50 bucks in a month. If you have two pets, 100 bucks a month. If you have three pets, 150 bucks a month, and so on and so forth. Because in the end, the $50 that you put away, and if you do that for the life of each pet, you will almost always be able to afford whatever that pet needs, the yearly wellness care, the flea and tick preventive, the heartworm preventive, uh, any surgeries that might be necessary, uh, medical treatments that may be necessary. Believe me, the $50 rule is a great rule. I have clients that I have advised about the $50 rule that swear by it, live by it, and are so happy that I mentioned it. And that's not something that I invented on my own, actually. It's something that um, I used to hear from residents when I was at the University of Illinois. They say, you know, if everybody just put away 50 bucks a month per pet, they would never have the financial trouble when it comes to, um, you know, affording the, the proper veterinary care. Because, you know, in the end, we're small businesses and we have a bottom line to keep and we have to, we have to turn a profit. We have to be able to pay our staff. We have to provide them with insurance benefits. We have to pay the mortgages. We have to pay for all that equipment that we use to work on your pets. And we cannot do that by offering services for free. So spare me your tale of woe. Take the precautions necessary and, you know, do the pet insurance. Do you know 50% of pet owners in Europe, 50%, 50% have pet insurance for their pets. You know how many in the United States? 3%. 3% as opposed to 50%. And I have colleagues that work in, in, in the European veterinary system, and they find themselves a lot less frustrated by the tales of woe, uh, the, the, the financial troubles that prevent people from being able to afford the wellness care for their, their pets, simply because they have pet insurance they can rely on. They know that when they put out the money to get the treatments, they're going to get a nice reimbursement check within 30 to 60 days. Um, only 3% of Americans are taking advantage of that. And you know what? That's no fault of our own. That's a decision that people make. And so one of the things about the economy we have to start start accepting is 
This is the way it is. The earning power isn't what it used to be. It will be back one day, but it's not gonna it's not gonna happen tomorrow. So in the meantime, what do we need to do? We need to have the number of pets that we can afford. Don't take on more than you can afford. Number two, do things like the $50 rule or pet insurance to prepare for the day that your pets may need expensive care. And end of story. So that's the economic news for this year. And it just dominated the headlines. And it just, you know, again, I, I'm done complaining um, about, you know, the state of the economy. It is what it is. Let's get on with our lives and uh, deal with deal with our reality. That's all we can do. Um, as far as uh, other things in the news, you know, certainly there's one of the great things about this year was uh, the advent of stem cell therapy. Stem cell therapy basically uh, stems from the fact that, or stems, um, comes from the notion that uh, we're all born with stem cells, and this includes dogs and cats, and stem cells are basically cells that can differentiate into any tissue. They have the capability of uh, differentiating into bone or skin or ligament or name your tissue. It can become that. It's the they're called progenitor cells, progenitor cells, which means that they uh, are basically the basic building block for all the cells in our body. So what we've begun doing in veterinary medicine is for a number of different treatments, but namely in the uh, treatment of degenerative joint disease and arthritis, most commonly at this point in time, is we're harvesting stem, stem cells from, from the fat of dogs and cats. What we can do is behind the lat muscle, the latissimus dorsi muscle, is usually a pretty good fat pad, especially in older animals. And we can actually make a small incision there, take some of that fat, send that fat to a laboratory that will um, extract the stem cell from it and create a stem cell culture, and then return to the veterinarian uh, a media that is very rich in stem cells. So what we can do with those stem cells is actually now inject them directly into diseased joints and those disease joints can be repaired with new tissue. And it's amazing some of the you know, results we're having. Um, and it's, the, the beauty of it is it's drug-free. It, it's not that invasive. I mean, harvesting the fat from the, um, from the area is probably the most painful part of it. And it's not really that bad. It's a very small incision. You're taking a small amount of fat tissue and... Uh, you know, injecting the joint is something we do under sedation, so they're not really feeling that. And the results have been mind-bogglingly mind good. And the beauty of it is that uh, some of these results are lasting as long as, you know, 12 to 18 months. And uh, so you have these dogs that some of them are on the verge of having to be put to sleep because of severe uh, arthritis or degenerative joint disease of their hips and knees. And we've been able to get them walking well and, and, and relieving their pain with stem cell therapy. And I think it's something that's truly amazing. Now, here's one of the things that we're going to start probably pushing for um, as time goes on here is that, you know, the, the younger, the younger, the fat of the younger patient is going to be more rich in stem cells than the fat of the older patient. And so what we're thinking about is considering actually recommending that owners enable us to harvest fat from the abdomen when we're doing a spay on a puppy, for example, um, or, or doing the, the back fat harvesting on a male puppy when we're simply neutering him. Uh, we have that tissue and we can actually 
send that off to be stored in cryo storage for a time later on when that dog or cat may uh, may need the stem cells for tissue regeneration. And having the fat of the younger patient, we're going to have a media that's much richer in stem cells. So that's something we're looking into. The other big uh, innovation is, and it, this one's becoming really mainstream, is low-level laser therapy. And I did a YouTube uh, show on this. Low-level low laser is based on the notion that when you apply a low level of photon energy to an, to an area focally, what you're doing is you're infusing the cells uh, with energy. And that energy translates to uh, more creation of ATP, which is the powerhouse of the cell, it, um, which in turn increases the capacity of cells and tissues to heal. Um, the process is called photobiomodulation, and it's, it's, it's really taken the industry by storm. Now, I've had my therapy lasers for two years, and I can tell you that the, the successes that I've had with it, I just, I never thought possible. When I first heard about it, I thought, well, this sounds interesting, perhaps a little hokey, but interesting. But I've had two cases, two cases just this year, where there was compre compressive disc injuries of the back and complete paralysis of the back end, meaning these dogs had come in with no ability to use their, their, their rear legs and barely pain sensation when I pinched their toes. Surgery was really, you know, the only, or I'm sorry, the most preferable or favorable option for these dogs. And the owner simply couldn't afford the uh, $6,000 or $7,000 estimate that they were given at the, at the specialist up the road to pay for the MRI necessary to find the, to locate the compression as well as the surgery to repair it. Back surgery is not cheap. Shelling out $7,000 is not something a lot of people can do. So I offered the alternative of the laser. Hey, it's better than try. It's better than doing nothing. Both of these dogs walked out of my office by treatment number five. Listen to that. Walked out of the office by treatment number five. Um, Low-level laser, you know, in my practice has been mostly for rehabilitation of injured joints, the back problems, you know, that I just talked about. Um, the older dogs that have, you know, hip dysplasia, uh, you know, uh, damaged ACLs in their knees that, you know, really we're not wanting to put through surgery. Um, so it, it provides pain relief because it stimulates, uh, it stimulates the tissues to release endorphins, endorphins nature's pain reliever. It also hits acupuncture points, which uh, we know acupuncture clinically works very well. So it has an acupuncture like effect. Folks, this is this is this stuff is legit and that, and if your dog or cat ever suffers from chronic pain uh, of any kind, I would suggest uh, talking to your veterinarian about therapy laser and maybe he or she has one and if not, perhaps find one who does because um it's becoming more and more common for practices to have these things. So I'm very, very happy about that. And uh, it's just so nice to see year to year all the innovation. Um, you know, just from 10 years ago when I graduated, the things that we're doing now that we didn't even think possible just 10 years ago. It's one of the exciting things about uh, being a veterinarian, being a physician. Um, so before we uh, continue with our topic here, because we have a few other things to reflect on for this year, and uh, stay with us here, but I have uh, another question. Uh, this was sent in from, let's see, Jennifer of Levittown, Pennsylvania. <laughs> this is a bit of a long one, folks. Okay, here we go. 
Um, I have two four-month-old Siamese kittens I bought from a breeder on October 15, 2011. They both had their first examinations with breeder on the 13th of October, a wellness exam, which was fine, panleukopenia virus, Khaleesi virus, and rhinotracheitis vaccine. They were 12 weeks old at the time. The boy kitten named Tinker started showing signs of upper respiratory infection on the second day. I had him... Oh, okay. The second day I had him, which was October 17, 2011. I took him to my vet and he was treated with Convenia. Convenia is an antibiotic injection that's long acting. After the two weeks, still no real improvement. Started him on regular amoxicillin on November 8th for 10 days. Plus, I started giving him L-lysine, 250 milligrams, two times a day in his wet food. He acts like a regular kitten and plays, eats well, uses his litter box. His sister has not had signs of this infection ever. They play, always sleep together, eat together, play together. He walks around sniffing and smells everything, it seems, and has a loud whistle, nose of congestion. My friend says he sounds like Darth Vader. <laughs> anyway, when he plays, he breathes very heavy. It seems because you hear him, but that doesn't stop him from playing crazy. His eyes are running with clear fluid, but it doesn't seem too severe. He also sneezes from time to time. During the day, I haven't taken him for a second round of vaccines due to him still fighting this. I also read using apple cider vinegar, undiluted organic brags is good for these colds. I placed a couple of drops on the back of his neck and then dilute some water, some in water, one part vinegar and four parts water, and I wipe his eyes and nose. It's only been about two days doing that. No real improvement yet. I did call the vet after it was completed to tell him still no real improvement. They said I should bring him in again, which means another $50 just for an exam. I'm really on a tight budget and can't afford too many visits. So I have been doing everything possible to help him get better. I even, I have even been using a warm mist humidifier from day one. This has not gone away yet. When he lays down to sleep and even walks around, you can hear him breathing. I even thought he could have an allergy to his litter and I'm considering changing to a litter with low dust. I bought the world's best cat litter, but have not changed it yet. What is your professional opinion on all these things that I, am con that, that I am concerned about? I hope you can help me. Thank you very much for your time and hope you can shed some light on this. Okay, so that was a very thorough uh, question from Jennifer of Levittown, Pennsylvania. And basically, um, Jennifer, I'm convinced that that kitten has an upper respiratory viral disease known as herpes virus. Um, herpes virus is exceedingly common, exceedingly, exceedingly common uh, in cats and kittens. Um, pretty much in a lot of, it's like a 50-50 proposition, kittens or cats coming out of either a shelter situation or a cattery. I'm not sure how many cats this breeder has, but um, you, you got about a 50-50 proposition that um, that cat's going to come with an upper, upper respiratory infection because it's extremely contagious. Uh, and it's ever so common. So specifically, this herpes virus in, in uh, cats is called rhinotracheitis because it's going to affect the nasal passages, the back of the throat, and the trachea, which is the windpipe. Okay, and it's typically not going to reach the lower respiratory, which would be the lungs, because that could cause bronchitis and pneumonia. It usually doesn't get that bad. But it can be a chronic pain in the rear end, as you're experiencing right now. Now, the good news is that you tell me he's playful. The good news is that you tell me he um, seems to be eating. And if all of these things are happening, eventually he will work this out unless he's immunosuppressed in some other way. Um, the, the bottom line with herpes virus is that they never really get rid of it. 
herpes virus shows up and it stays. It gets integrated in the host DNA and it's something where the body has to build up enough antibody resistance to it where it actually just suppresses the herpes virus um, you know, in, in a lot of cases very effectively. Um, the, worst out, the first outbreak is typically the worst. It's the toughest to get older or to, it's the toughest to get over. But as they get older and stronger and they're adult cats, what you find is that even if they have a future outbreak, it's going to be a lot less severe. It's going to be mild. Sometimes they'll even go under the owner's radar. And uh, only in rare cases does this remain a chronic problem for the life of the cat. So I think there's every reason to be hopeful here. One of the things that I like you're do that you're doing is the L-lysine treatments. L-lysine is very effective in modulating the immune system to help fight herpes virus. Um, and we, we do it in people, actually, in cases of chickenpox and shingles, both herpes viruses. Uh, we know that supplementation of L-lysine is a very effective combative tool uh, with cats, or I'm sorry, with people. So the same uh, is also very true of herpes virus in cats. Now, the dose you're using, 250 milligrams, um, twice a day in his wet food, that would, that would be the dose. Um, you, can give, you can split it like you've been doing, or you can give 500 milligrams all at once, um, but you're on the right track there. As far as the convenia and the amoxicillin not helping very much, well, this is a viral problem, and viruses are not killed by antibiotics. Uh, where, where the convenia or the amoxicillin, which are antibiotics, can be helpful is the secondary chlamydial infections uh, that can develop as a result of uh, the virus. So the virus compromises the tissue and secondary bacterial infections can occur. But um, generally, these things will run their course within 14 to 21 days. And in some of these cases, it just takes that kitten reaching adulthood or close to adulthood before he truly gets this under control. Um, so my advice to you is definitely continue the L-lysine. I like the humidifier. I think that's also a good idea. Uh, humidifiers, what they do is they moisten the air, they uh, enable the inhalation of uh, little hydration particles that help to loosen mucus and make it more difficult for virus and bacteria to adhere to the lining of the respiratory passages, which helps in recovery. Um, as far as the, 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 the vinegar deal, um, not really familiar with that. I, I, I can't see that really being anything that's going to be helpful. My suggestion to you instead is going to the grocery store and getting a type of eye drop that's over the counter called Genteel Drops. Genteel is an ocular lubricant and protection where you just drop it in the eyes and it just helps protect the eyes. It helps to protect the membranes and it's quite soothing. And in the process, you're also lubricating the tissues, also making it more difficult for bacteria and virus to adhere. So Genteel Drops two to three times a day, I think would be a better choice than uh, that solution that you were talking about. But you, you'll likely get through this. It can be frustrating, these sort of chronic cases that, you know, don't want to quite budge. But if you keep doing what you're doing, stick by your guns. As long as the cat is eating, as long as he is playful, as long as there's no respiratory distress, okay, he's breathing hard, but distress like open mouth breathing, blue tongue, anything like that, then just stay the course. You will win this battle. And, uh, and, and, and you know, likely your kitty will win this battle. Um, but it sounds like you're on the right track. Thank you very much for your question. So uh, moving along with our topic this evening, uh, again, we were talking about reflections of this year and final thoughts, and um, I talked about the economy, okay? Uh, we know that reality. We have talked about some of the new innovations that we've experienced in veterinary medicine, which are very exciting. Next thing I'd like to bring up is, um, you know, talk about 
puppy mills. Um, this seems to be a problem that just never wants to go away because it just seems like you just can't get legislators to care enough about it to really make any big dent in it. Now, one of the things I'm happy about this year is the advent of the capital of puppy mills in the United States being Missouri finally enacted legislation. It's called the Puppy Mill Act. And basically it limits the number of breeding animals that can be present uh, in a particular facility. Um, it it uh, creates mandatory access of veterinarians to come and inspect the premises and inspect the uh, the animals and the visits can be unannounced. That way, you know, they can show up and the puppy mill doesn't have the opportunity to make things look a lot better before the um, investigative body shows up. Now, that being said, uh, it's a step in the right direction, but if you look at the language of the law, it really, it really falls short. It's not aggressive enough. And, you know, we're still going to see the puppy mill problem. And it's not just Missouri. I like to pick on Missouri because, you know, all the local pet stores around here that put out these sick, you know, animals that they're selling for thousands of dollars that for whatever reason, people just keep spending the money for that come into me to get treated for pneumonia and whatever else. And later on to manage their hip dysplasia and congenital heart disease and everything else that comes out of these abysmal puppy mill situations. They all seem to come from Missouri. So yes, Missouri seems to be the biggest offender, but you know, there's other states out there, Arkansas, um, even my home state of Florida, there's some puppy mill situations, backyard breeders that are every bit as horrific as puppy mills. Um, so it's a problem that we, we need to continue to be aware of. We need to spread awareness to the people uh, that we know, friends, colleagues of ours that are looking into getting dogs and cats and let them understand that catteries and puppy mills, what they're perpetuating is cruelty. Some people feel that when they go to a pet store and buy a puppy who's in, you know, come from these abysmal conditions, they're, they're rescuing, you know, they're, uh, my heart went out and I felt like I needed to rescue this puppy. I need to rescue this kitten. So I had to buy it. I had to spend $3,000 on it. Well, that's all good and fine. And it's great that you have that kind of compassion. But at the same time, when you're giving that $3,000, what are you doing? You're proving to these idiots that they can continue to make money off of it. And what happens? They're going to continue to do it till the next person comes along and feels the need to rescue that, that pet. Um, so be aware of the fact that also there's parents of these animals. The mother and the father are in these abysmal conditions, pumping out litter after litter, uh, many of them without any access to veterinary care, fed very poor diets, bred over and over and over again until their uterus is about to fall out. Um, without rest, and, and, you know, the cruelty of those parents continues. You may provide that, that puppy or that kitten with a, a good life, a compassionate life, and, and, and God knows they deserve that kindness. They didn't have to be born into this world, but the parents continue to suffer. They continue to suffer over and over and over again for years on end. And remember, you're perpetuating that when you buy from these pet stores that, that, that get their puppies and their kittens from puppy mills. So that's something we need to spread awareness about. And whenever there's measures that come up, uh, like in Missouri, the, the, the Puppy Mill Act came up as a ballot measure, meaning that the general public voted on it. Believe it or not, it only passed by like 51%. So only 50, that, that just, I, it was a, just utterly, utterly, utterly surprising to me that only 51% of the population of Missouri cared enough to vote in, to vote yes to do something about their horrific puppy mill problem. Um, it, it was amazing to me. So stay involved. Know when these ballot measures come out. 
and, and support legislation that tries to do something about this problem. Um, next thing I want to get into is dogfighting, but before I do that, I want to move on to our next question. This is from Andrea of Austin, Texas, and here's her question. I enjoy listening to your podcast as a pet owner and a 2011 vet school applicant. Good for you and best of luck with that. I find them interesting and informative. The last podcast about grain-free pet foods brought up a few questions I had for a while that are semi-related. I have a one-year-old Brittany Spaniel that was starting to show signs of skin problems and or flea allergies for a, a, at about five months old. Initially, I was feeding Beneful and using Frontline, and the little guy was itching, chewing, and miserable. I started talking to people about flea problems, and some suggested a brewer's yeast and garlic supplement. So I switched from Beneful to Taste of the Wild, kept with Frontline, and started giving brewer's yeast and garlic supplement, and had 100% improvement. My questions are, do you know any of the truth to brewer's yeast and garlic being an effective flea repellent? And the options for topical flea control can be slightly overwhelming. I've heard reports of some topic topicals making dogs sick, some losing effectiveness over time. How should I go about picking the right one, or is it just trial and error? These are very, very good questions. So first of all, let's start about let's start with the diet. The switch from Benefil to Taste of the Wild, very good move. Taste of the Wild is a very nice food. It is grain free. Um, again, I think the grain free thing is over overblown, but if you know you're not doing you you can only do well by your dog if you're choosing grain free. I think. Probably the majority of dogs aren't reacting to grains, but Taste of the Wild is a nice wholesome diet. It's preservative-free, grain-free, um, very popular, and I've seen a lot of dogs and cats, by the way, do very well on it. So Benefil, I'm not a fan of. Um, Benefil, I find, is uh, very very, uh, very laden with fillers. Um, I, I don't find it one of the better diets out there. There's some good Purina products out there. I just don't think Benefil is one of them. Um, Frontline is a really nice product. Uh, now, as, as far as effectiveness, uh, Frontline, you know, very nice product, but we're, when, when there's a, a bad flea uh, persistent problem, um, I find that it, it, it may not kill them fast enough to break that life cycle, in, in all honesty. I, I'm a fan of Frontline because I like the safety of it. Obviously, we heard from Ron earlier that has a little bit of a different take on that because it's obviously so sensitive to a lot of things, but generally, Frontline is a really nice product. And... Um, but in your case, where uh, it seems that you're having some issue with the front line, perhaps keeping up with the um, the flea issue, my suggestion would maybe be try Comfortis. Now, Comfortis is given by pill. It is a the active ingredient is called Spinosad, which is a very very uh, safe ingredient. And where front line can seem to have trouble keeping up with some of these bad flea infestations, Comfortis seems to kill them much faster so you know nothing repels fleas so the fleas have to get on the dog before they die um, and what happens is in that time period you're hoping that they can't reproduce Comfortis seems to break that life cycle more effectively than anything else on the planet and i like the safety of it now there's a new product called trisexis and trisexis has Comfortis in it but it also has heartworm preventive and that's become really popular because it's one pill gets your heartworm gets your fleas the heartworm prevention that's in that is the same active ingredient that's an interceptor, which is a really nice product that we've had out there for years. So that would be my advice there. Consider Comfortis or maybe just go with your all-in-one product, um, Trisexis, okay? Now, as far as the brewer's yeast thing and garlic, uh, there, there's absolutely not one, um, not one study that has ever proved that this works. Um, and the proof is also in the pudding with, you know, people who may be very organically and, and holistically oriented, 
try this as a flea repellent and they end up coming in to buy Frontline or Comfortis or Advantage or Advantix or something like that. Um, so I, I honestly wouldn't waste your time. It, it doesn't really do anything. Um, it, it's just one of those old wives' tales. And, um, you know, it, it's just it's just not something that uh, that, that my experience has, has given me any reason to believe in. So, um, you know, if Frontline's working for you, I'd say stick with it because it's, I, we like the safety of it. Um, now, as far as what you said about how should I go about picking the right one or just trial and error, there's some truth to the trial and error thing because, you know, just like there's no one diet that's perfect for every dog, there's not one flea preventive necessarily that's perfect for every dog. There's going to be potentially tolerance issues. I'll see one dog do better with advantage. I'll see another one do better with frontline in terms of efficacy and preventing the flea. So there's a little trial and error involved. And I'd say, you know, if you're doing well right now, your dog's doing well, I wouldn't fix what's not broken. If you find yourself battling fleas again uh, with your dog, then uh, maybe consider making the switch to Comfortis or Trifexis. Uh, and uh, that's, that's a very good question, though. And best of luck to you there, Andrea, with your veterinary career. It's, it's such a rewarding job, and I always like to hear about budding vet students. Uh, one more uh, question to go here, but I just want to get into the last topic here and then and, and that's one of the reflections of this year and that's the the persistence of dog fighting now you know we see michael vick back on the playing field and people cheering for him and it almost seems like the dog fighting incident incident was long forgotten um but and that's true to a certain degree um i think to his credit he's done a lot of things to help that situation he's spoken out against dog fighting he has uh, offered a lot of remorse. You know, I'd like to think that he's sincere in that remorse. I've been very critical of him, but um, I have to respect the fact that he's done some uh, a lot of uh, work with local shelters in the Philadelphia area and uh, really been an advocate for uh, the, the the ceasing of dogfighting, the ceasing of the persistence of dogfighting in our country. So, um, but it's still it's still out there. It's something that um, it's sad, and I, I think that. What it comes down to is anybody listening to this show, I'm sure, um, finds dogfighting as, appall as appalling as I do and, and would never, ever participate in something like that. But I think what it comes down to is, you know, there's not a lot the individual can do in terms of going to shut these places down because most of us are not going to be hanging around places where there's dogfighting going on. So what it comes down to, though, is support legislation in your states. And again, a lot of these are ballot measures. Support legislation that's going to be tougher. Uh, the penalties are going to be tougher. I mean, for my, for what Michael Vick did, 16 months in jail, really? 16 months. Um, I found that ridiculous. And again, I, I don't want to harp on Michael Vick too much because, you know, he did serve his time as mandated by the government. And, you know, he has every right to be out on the street because he served his time. But the time should have been longer. The penalty should have been stiffer. Um, and, and I think that's one of the biggest problems with dogfighting is in some states it's a misdemeanor. In others it's a felony, but... Uh, you know, your, your, the, the felony and the, the maximum penalties are not necessarily enforced. Too much discretion is given to the judges where they give these slap on the wrist sentences. So um, the best thing that we can do as pet owners and advocates for animal welfare is in stopping the, you know, the, the dog fighting problem is to be advocates for stronger, tougher legislation against it. And when stories come out about it, um, you know, Get petitions together. Uh, write your write your state legislators or legislature. Um, you know, be active in your opposition and voice your opposition because uh, unless we put more pressure on our legislators, 
nothing's you know, really going to happen. And I think one of the good things about the Michael Vick case is it, it did create a lot of awareness about it. Um, I, I, I think the story is so sad and so disturbing that it's almost hard to think about. Uh, but in the end, uh, he did the cause against dogfighting a big favor uh, by bringing it to the forefront, by, make, by making the country realize that this problem really exists. It exists so much and is so ingrained in this underground subculture that even an NFL star was part of it. You know, and that's, that's something that I'm glad we're all aware of. Um, my last uh, email question, then we'll wrap up the show for the evening, is from, this one's from an international uh, consultation. This is from Karen of Sydney, Australia. And uh, always love to get international consultations. All right, here's, here's Karen's uh, question. My name is Karen. I live in Sydney, Australia, and have recently discovered your podcast. I think it's great. Smiley face. <laughs> I love the passion you have for your job and the animals in your care. My own pets are also benefiting from your willingness to share information and educate pet owners my, like myself. I'm hoping that you can help me with a couple of questions about my dog. I have a Jack Russell uh, mix called Flute, who will be 15 years old next month. Overall, she's in good health. She's the correct weight and has a zest for life that has that has to be seen to be believed. <laughs> she does have cataract arthritis and a heart murmur. She isn't showing any symptoms such as coughing with her heart. So is on no medications for that. She does have a monthly carprofen shot. It said Yukonuba sees a chiropractor every six weeks and has fish oil and joint powder on her food. I have two questions. Her teeth aren't pretty, and my vet recently did blood that all came back within a normal range. Yay! In preparation for having her dental. However, in between taking the blood and me going to book her in for the dental, the heart murmur was discovered, and my vet is now unwilling to perform the dental. I was okay with this until I heard one of your shows where you suggested that dogs aren't getting younger and that it's often a good idea to have the dental done. Do you suggest that I get a second opinion from a veterinary dentist or trust my own vet, who is a lovely man, and has never yet steered me wrong. Secondly, my vet has suggested that Flute only have 15-minute gentle exercise per day. I have four dogs in total, and most mornings we head out to the local park and the dogs free run for anywhere from 40 to 60 minutes. Flute loves these walks and hates to be left at home when the younger dogs really need the longer walk. Our normal routine is that Flute and I walk along with the other dogs, run ahead, and then back to me, chase the ball, etc. Flute is off lead, so there is no pulling on her neck, and even with stopping to sniff, pee, and do doggy things, she is always a little ahead of me. She pulls up fine and is not obviously sore after these walks, so I have continued to take her on them against my vet's advice. Is there a correct amount of exercise for an old dog, or am I correct in observing her behavior during and after a walk and basing my decision on that? I know there will come a day when she'll have to really slow down, but I just don't feel that she's there yet. Thank you for reading this. Sorry that it's kind of long. Once again, thank you for all that you do. I love your show and look forward to new episodes. I hope that this finds you well and that you and your family enjoy a wonderful Christmas. And you as well, Karen. And thank you for uh, sending us this question all the way from down under. And um, I'm happy to give you my two cents here. As you know, I'm not very good at staying quiet. <laughs> um, I have to respectfully disagree with your vet when it comes to the heart murmur issue. Um, I'm sure he's a lovely man, but... Um, and I know that the quality of veterinary care in Australia is quite good. In fact, uh, the, the dean of students of, the, of my vet school was actually uh, went to University of Sydney and um, was Australian, and he was a phenomenal large animal surgeon. So um, I know the quality of vet care is good, but still, um, 
I have to say I disagree. Here's, here's why. First of all, a heart murmur isn't necessarily something to terribly worry about. A heart murmur basically just indicates that there is a leaky heart valve. And when we're listening to the heart, we're hearing valve slam shut, and that's the heartbeat. We're not actually hearing the heart contract. A, a flexing muscle, a contracting muscle, which is all the heart is when it's contracting down, it doesn't make any noise, any more noise than your bicep makes when you flex your bicep. What we're hearing is the slamming shut of valves because when that heart pumps down, we want blood always going in one direction, not backwards. When we hear a heart murmur, what we're hearing is one of those, one or more of those valves is, is allowing backflow, and to some degree, some blood is going in the wrong direction. Over time, the heart has to work harder to get the same amount of blood circulating through the body because of that little defect, and it will enlarge, which eventually worsens the problem and causes a cascade that probably your dog is not experiencing just yet. Now, here's why I disagree with your vet. Number one, periodontal disease we know can actually cause heart disease and specifically valvular heart disease. So we can actually see bacteria seed from constantly swallowed bacterial colonies in the mouth from cases of bad periodontal disease actually seed itself in the bloodstream to heart valves. And we call that condition bacterial endocarditis. So it may be a contributing factor to the heart problem. So that's number one why, why I think I disagree. Number two, clinically your dog's doing fine, okay? And the intensity of the heart murmur does not always correlate with the degree of the defect. So sometimes I'll hear a honking murmur, yet I do an echo of, of the dog, and an echo is an ultrasound of the heart. We can actually see the blood flow through the heart, and you'll see, wow, this really isn't all that bad. And then I'll do an EKG and think, well, the electrical conduction isn't really badly affected. And then I'll consult with a cardiologist, and the cardiologist will tell me, okay, we'll proceed with the dental or whatever anesthetic procedure is, but here's the, here's the anesthetic agents I'd like you to use, and here's the doses as a precaution, right? So what we do is just because there's a heart murmur, you know, we don't want to discount completely the notion that uh, we're just not going to do necessary work here. We're going to try to do it. Of course, I'm not going to risk your pet's life over it either, but I'm going to, I'm going to investigate a little bit. So the first thing I would do is uh, have, uh, get a couple of chest x-rays to see the size of the heart, make sure it's not enlarged. Number two, I would uh, consider, strongly consider having an echocardiogram where an ultrasound probe is placed on the chest, and we can actually measure the cardiac wall thickness. We can actually look at the valve, see how uh, bad the defect truly is, and how bad the dynamics of the heart may be or may not be. And then I'd also just run a quick EKG. What we do is we take all that information, and then we, we assess risk. Is this a huge risk, or is it not? Um, and I'll tell you, more often than not, I find the cardiologist that I, that I consult with is more often than not comfortable with moving forward with a dentistry procedure knowing how important dentistry is to overall health. So what we do is that cardiologist offers me, okay, well, as, an, as a pre-medication injection, I'd like you to use this. Uh, for an induction agent, I'd like you to use this. And here's, our, here's the parameters that I would like you to go by um, in terms of uh, if there's problems, have this, 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 or that, uh, A through D medications available in case there is an issue. And, and that's how I go about it. Furthermore, I have my, uh, my patient, when, when he or she is on the table, are hooked up to a, a monitor called the surgery vet that's going to give me blood pressure. It's going to give me EKG, which is the electrical conduction of the heart. It's going to give me oxygen saturation of the bloodstream and blood pressure. This is a lot of information, so if bad things start to happen, guess what? I'm going to be able to do something about it before it's life-threatening in most cases. 
We could step in and maybe up fluids if the pressure gets low. If the heart rate starts to drop a little bit, I could administer atropine or epinephrine if necessary. So there's precautions you can take to circumvent this. So um, my advice is to have a cardiac workup, see the degree of problem um, or lack of it, and then based on that information, move forward with the dental or not move forward with the dental, perhaps move forward with the dental only on under the guidance of, of a cardiologist offering the drug doses. I would have this conversation with your veterinarian to see if this is something he'd be willing to do first. Um, what, what some veterinarians will do is, you know, they, they, they will refrain from, you know, necessarily directing the owner um, through a, an aggressive workup with an older patient, just assuming that, well, I don't want to put, you know, the owner may not want to put their dog through all that. But you know what? you got a Jack Russell, and while he may be 15 years old, who knows how, how long that dog can live, and who knows how bad those teeth can get, and who knows, maybe that heart disease is directly related to the teeth. So that's my advice to you there. I just want to make sure I haven't missed anything. Oh, regarding the exercise. Um, you know, Jack Russell Terriers are very amped up little dogs, and they're not necessarily going to let us know if they're doing more than their body bodies can handle. But I will tell you this. If the arthritis that, uh, I'm sorry, I keep saying tears. Let me just refer to this again. Um, she, I keep saying he. Okay, so his flute is just she. Um, if 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 she really couldn't tolerate the exercise that badly, you would see that she's very lame afterwards. Or you know, some dogs can be crippled if their arthritis is bad enough after you know 40 to 60 minutes of activity. But clinically, if she doesn't look that bad, then she's probably okay. Um, clinically, if she can run around and and not look excessively fatigued, gasping for air, any of that sort of thing, turning blue. Um, then I would say probably she's okay. And, and my feeling is um, let's let the dog be a dog. And if there's something that we're worried about, you know, do the cardiac workup and maybe she could benefit from for some medications that may make that activity safer. Um, but that's, uh, that's pretty much my take on it. And I do thank you very much for your international consultation there. Um, that wraps up my show. I got really talkative on this one. I, oh, my hour is almost up, so I'm going to have to split here quickly. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for another year of your support. Thank you for uh, listening and caring about what I have to say. Great questions tonight. I, I thank you all for your participation, and I wish all you and yours happy holidays. We'll be back in early January with all new episodes, so keep those emails coming. Let's keep those consultations going. I love to talk about it, and I love to address your concerns and your questions. Take care now, and again, happy holidays. How powerful is the Cox Network? So powerful that one day, the Internet will let your doctor perform miracles from thousands of miles away. Connecting to remote operating room. Giving a whole new meaning to the term house call. Operation complete. The Cox Network. With gig speeds everywhere, it's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, bringing us closer. In Cox serviceable areas, speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms apply. Other restrictions may apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.